hey, I want to let all the listeners know that some of what we're going to talk about today could be triggering and some of it is pretty graphic in nature. So we are going to be discussing things about some graphic details about homicides and some things that are related to sexual assault. So I want to make sure that anybody that's listening now, you have the opportunity to maybe find something else to do if there's a chance that this could be triggering. Hey there, if you like true crime stories and you love being in the great outdoors, you have come to the right place. I'm Tara, your host. Welcome to Crime Off the Grid. Okay, hey everybody. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Crime Off the Grid. I've got a special guest today who's absolutely the perfect person to help me cover this case. Dr. Justin Wright is here. He's got some credentials that are going to really help us decipher the criminalities in this case. So, Dr. Wright, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I know I'm going to butcher your bio, so would you mind telling us about yourself? Well, I appreciate you having me on, Tara. This is going to be a fun little conversation today. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. Let's talk about my education a little bit. Um, I probably spent too much money on this, um, <laughs> but I have uh, three degrees in psychology. One's a bachelor's and then another's a master's degree. Um, I got my master's degree from Western Kentucky University. Um, and then I went and worked in a hospital for a very long time. And as an older adult, I went back and got my, uh, what's called our doctorate of psychology uh, degree from the Florida School of National, or sorry, from um, National Lewis University in St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, and then from there, uh, you don't just get to start working. You have to go and get extra training right. as a doctor. Yeah. So I went and got my, uh, we call that your um, your doctoral internship experience was in California. So I went to Metropolitan State Hospital and was uh, completed their uh, program there. And then from there, moved back to Tennessee and picked up my postdoctoral education, uh, which is about 2,000 plus hours um, at Mox and, ben Univ- or Mox and Ben Mental Health Institute. Mm-hmm. And I did that with Dr. Lefton there, so I owe him a big thanks. Um, he might listen to this, so hello, Dr. Lefton. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, and then uh, I worked in uh, Tennessee for a while with him. Um, working at the State Institute there in Chattanooga, Moxon Bend is the name of it. Um, and then uh, made a big move out here to Colorado where I'm located now. And now I work for the state of Colorado um, in the forensic services uh, and mental health um, department. Wow. So like what what is your job description essentially in your current job? Yeah, so I'm a... Under my license, I'm licensed as a clinical psychologist. My specialty and training is in forensic psychology. Wow. So what the, that is, is the meeting of psychology and legal circumstances. So we're looking at um, what we're going to talk a lot about today is competency. Um, those are one of the type of evaluations that I do for the state. Um, another type of evaluation I've done in the past would be like mental insanity so you hear about people that are not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, those are some pretty popular cases in our country sometimes. Um, so I do those evaluations too. Um, but oh, we're going to kind of focus yeah. on competency today yeah. with Gabrielle. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're yeah. going to see exactly why uh, we have Dr. Wright on this show today by the time we get to the end of this story. 
We have a lot to talk about. Yes, we do. Uh, well, I'll go ahead and start it off. Uh, our story starts on July 5th, 1997, when two turtle hunters discovered a body in Oxford Lake in a national forest in Michigan, which was the Manistee National Forest. And that is located in the lower peninsula of Michigan. And it has a total area of 540,000 acres. Oxford Lake is a remote lake in the Manistee National Forest, accessible only by two-track dirt road. And the northern half of the lake is actually private property with lots of prime real estate around it. But the southern half is part of the National Forest and is in federal jurisdiction. So the body was located in the southern portion of the lake, approximately 200 feet from the border to the private property. And the turtle hunters, who were also fishermen, after seeing the body, they contacted law enforcement and the Nuego County Sheriff's deputies responded. And what they found was that this body was encircled by uh, a nearly impenetrable mat of floating weeds and, vegeta- and vegetation. You couldn't just get in there with the boat. So to reach the body, the fishermen and the detectives had to row to like the far end of the southern edge of the weed mat where the vegetation wasn't as thick and then and then continue north. And the body they found was wearing a plaid shirt, jeans, but no shoes. And they could tell it was that of a female. And on her face was duct tape across her eyes and mouth, but not her nose. There were chains around her body affixed to cinder blocks with padlocks. Also, the cinder blocks had this reddish paint on them. And because of weeks of decomposition, there were these gases associated. And that's actually what allowed her to float to the top, essentially. This victim was also handcuffed from behind. But also because of the decomposition, the skin had been sloughed off. And it looked like it was going to be very difficult to ID who this person was. So they sent the body to the Michigan Crime Lab and determined the cause of death was drowning, which meant. This victim was alive when she was chained and dropped in the water. One week later, the sloth skin was recovered and somehow they were able to make a positive ID. They they somehow can reconstruct like the volume or tenseness of finger pads to pull the fluid out, I guess, from the tissues in order to create this dry skin surface so they can actually pull fingerprints. And there's a big long word for that, but I forgot what it is. Maybe you know, you're a doctor. <laughs> I don't know if you know what that's uh, called. I do not know. <laughs> I do not know that word is. And let's remember that was back in 1997 in the, when they were yeah, doing that. Yeah. So yeah. you can so only imagine impressive. what their technology is now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the fact that they could, they could pull p- fingerprints from a, a very decaying body was actually impressive for back then. So, The person that they found dead and bound in Oxford Lake was Rachel Timmerman, and she was just 19 years old, and she lived actually about 20 miles from where she was recovered. Rachel was a young mother and lived in Cedar Springs, Michigan, and that was, and she was just 17 when she had her daughter, Shannon. So they determined Rachel was last seen a month prior on June 3rd, 1997. She had told her dad she was going on a dinner date with someone named John and someone who she'd been talking to on the phone quite a bit, but had never met. And she was really excited about this date. She took baby Shannon with her because this guy sounded like he really wanted to meet her baby. Her dad saw her get into a car with this man, 
but the man never got out of the vehicle, so he couldn't see who he was or or identify him at all. So Rachel didn't come home that night. And the next morning, a letter was left for her dad where she told her family not to worry. She had met the man of her dreams. Apparently, it wasn't uncommon for her to write a letter. And her dad said it was definitely her handwriting. So we're going to go back in time just a bit uh, on the evening of August 6, 1996. So not quite a year earlier. Rachel's sister, Sarah, awoke from her sleep to the sound of commotion inside her trailer. And Sarah looked around and saw Rachel facing the outside door with a hammer in her hand. And Rachel was hysterical and very, very scared and screaming and crying. And her face was bleeding from a cut on her nose. Someone outside the trailer was yelling at her and banging on the door. And a man's voice shouted that Rachel would, quote, pay for what she did. And Rachel yelled back at him, telling him to leave. And after a while, the banging stopped and the man left. Rachel was initially reluctant to talk about what had happened just earlier that night. But she eventually told Sarah and her brother Shane that Marvin Gabriel had raped her and bitten her on the nose. But she didn't want to report it to the police because Gabriel had threatened that he would kill her and her daughter, Shannon, who at that time was just two months old. Even though she was reluctant to report the incident the next day, Rachel reported to the police that she had gone to some card game party situation that evening. And she left the party with her friend named Wayne Davis, a man named Mikey Gabriel, and his 43-year-old uncle Marvin Gabriel supposedly to go get some beer with them. And after stopping in a field, Marvin Gabriel ordered the two men out of the car and then drove off with Rachel to a remote area in the forest. He then violently beat her and raped her three times, according to Rachel's report to the police. Now, and that's pretty common, Tara, when we're talking about, you know, uh, sexual assaults and rape where the individual is really reluctant to come forward and there's threats made at their lives and those things. This is a pretty, I don't want to say typical case because of that, but those are very common aspects to rape cases. Well, that's exactly right. But um, mostly it's because of fear. And in this case, you know, he made violent threats. And a lot of times they have a fear of not being believed. Or they have a fear of being dragged through the mud through the court cases, etc. So you're exactly right. Yeah, that's that would not be unusual. But she told her family that she didn't want him to do this to anybody else. And that's why she decided to come forward. And it is unusual to come forward mm-hmm. uh, very timely like that. You know, sometimes you get reports that are very delayed, but, you know, which is not unusual a month or even a year sometimes, but this was very timely. And so I'm sure even in the nineties, they were able to do a forensic exam or what some people call a rape kit and uh, get quite a bit of evidence mm-hmm. from that. So now the police interviewed Gabriel, and his story is that during the drive, Rachel offered to perform oral sex on him. So he let Wayne and Mike out of the car. He said that he and Rachel drove further down the road, and then he got out of the car, and she performed oral sex on him. And he put his, this is kind of weird, I don't know why he would say this, but he says, then he put his semen on her vagina. And I don't know if I should have made a graphic uh, content warning for before uh, we started this podcast, but I'm going to continue. <laughs> he says that she asked for intercourse, but he refused, and uh, nobody was probably going to buy that. But he was basically 
just preemptively setting up why they would have likely found his fluids on her, I think. Yes, that that makes him have very organized thinking. Yeah. Um, it really, you know, we'll get into kind of his mental state uh, in a little bit. We'll talk about some of the things he brings up about his thinking not being organized, which is a typical right. sign of schizophrenia. Uh. But that right there is a pretty telling sign. Oh, well, this definitely happened and it's a very odd situation, which typically doesn't occur. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's setting his own defense up there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, he, he knew they would find fluids from her in the forensic exam. And at one point he says, uh, tells the police she sat on his dog. I, I don't know the point of that statement, but as they were leaving, he says his car got stuck and she helped him push his car out, but hurt herself in the process. And then he took her to her trailer. And shortly thereafter, she started screaming because she realized she was hurt. And that's, that's quite the story. Exactly like you said, he's, he's setting up his defense. And by the way, uh, in sexual assault, there really are only two defenses to an allegation of, of assault. And one is, uh, it wasn't me. Some other dude did it, or the Saudi defense, we sometimes call it. Um, Or the other defense is just, it was all consensual, which is what he's trying to say here. Mm -hmm. But after a six-month investigation, on January 20th, 1997, Marvin Gabriel was arrested and charged with rape. He was released on bail two weeks later. According to Rachel's family, the rape had a horrible effect on her, both physically and mentally. And this happens to anyone, really, who's been sexually assaulted. And they, they incur a lot of trauma after an assault. In the months following the rape, Rachel attempted to turn her life around. She, it, you know, and back then, I doubt that she received any um, crisis counseling. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't read anything that says she got any type of crisis counseling. But she began focusing her time on Shannon her family, and she got a new job working at a local restaurant. However, the date for Marvin's preliminary hearing came closer. She worried about having to testify against him. She told her parents that he had threatened her several times leading up to the court hearing. She also said she was having recurring nightmares about him and believed that he would kill her. Her father, Tim, told her he would help her with the trial, and according to her parents, on June 3rd, Right before her date, she did seem very happy and very excited. Yeah, so she's, I mean, just that basic description you described there is typical PTSD, right? Yeah. Post-traumatic stress disorder where she's having night terrors, waking up. I mean, it doesn't give physical descriptions there, but we could imagine waking up fearful, sweating, uh, confused, those type of things. Uh, It sounds like she's had a little bit of flashback stuff going on where they kind of say she was in a different state. Right. um, And she wasn't quite thinking clearly. So, yeah, she's definitely... A victim and trauma, and you know that kind of points to the truth of her statements, right? Right. Um, because it's about you know she's displaying things that she can't control um, as symptoms, and that's showing that there has been trauma of some kind. So no, exactly. I, and again, I, I doubt that she had any type of assistance in helping her through her trauma and getting help for her PTSD back then. I, I what, in the state of Michigan. If she'd gone to the hospital, they would have recommended somebody. There might have been a social worker that interacted with her briefly to mm-hmm. kind of set her up with some community resources, hopefully. Again, this is you know being in a utopian world right. and everybody doing the yeah, job correctly. Exactly. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, different states, uh, you know, as I've lived in different ones, you can there's a big 
there's a difference in culture, of course, Absolutely. across our nation uh, when yeah. it comes to uh, sexual assaults and females and victims, um, especially a young female who's already had a daughter. Um, that could really be something difficult in the South, where maybe up in Michigan it might yeah. not the same, and maybe right. out here in Wyoming and Colorado it's a little different. Right. Too, so, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, back to her disappearance. Um, Rachel's father was concerned that she did not come home after her date on June third, and. It didn't really make sense that she left that letter about going on vacation, found the man of my dreams, because she just started that job, her new job, and she was supposed to testify very soon. In fact, just two days later, June 5th, is when Marvin had his preliminary hearing. But as we know now, Rachel did not show up. And without her testimony, the authorities were forced to drop the rape charges against him. And I don't know, today's culture, maybe uh, detectives could have gotten enough um, that they might not have needed her, that they might have had enough evidence forensically, especially in statements of witnesses and, and everything else. But 11 days later, after Gabriel's hearing, the prosecutor also got a letter. And in that letter, it was which was allegedly from Rachel, and it was postmarked from Little Rock, Arkansas. And it said she tried. It's like, it's like she's... Um, recanting if this was her, but she's saying, yes, I tried to have uh, intercourse with Marvin, but he refused. And that's why I made up this rape allegation. And the prosecutor, of course, didn't believe that she wrote the letter. She believed that Rachel was in danger. So the same day, her father, Tim, also received another letter as well, postmarked from Little Rock, Arkansas. And it also allegedly written by Rachel said that she and Shannon were fine and that she would soon call him. And of course, she never did. And by the way, that was also in Rachel's handwriting or appeared to be in Rachel's handwriting. That's an interesting part of that. Yeah. Well, I, um, I, I wonder I wonder what really happened there and how that writing appears to be hers. Well, there's a theory um, from law enforcement about where that came from. And we'll, we can get to that probably towards the end here um, as to how that came um, to be. So Marvin Gabriel quickly becomes the obvious suspect for Rachel's murder. Detectives find out where he's supposedly living and they get a warrant for his property. They go there and Gabriel's not there, but they find a lot of evidence. And when police searched his home, they found two keys that matched the padlocks found on Rachel's body. Also the concrete blocks that were at his home were stained with the same reddish paint material as the ones that were attached to Rachel's body. And so Gabriel's nephew later led investigators to his campsite near Oxford Lake. They found there, they found bolt cutters, another length of chain, similar to the same chain that was found around her, duct tape, a woman's hair clip, and silicone uh, nipples for a baby bottle. So remember that guy, John, that Rachel left with in the car, or she said his name was John the last time that she was seen. He turned out to be John Weeks, who happened to be an acquaintance of Gabriel's. And Rachel didn't know Weeks, but he persuaded her to go on a date with him by calling her repeatedly. She didn't realize that he was acting on Gabriel's behalf. Weeks actually had a girlfriend at the time named Aileen Wolf. So Wolf contacted police with a tip after learning about the discovery of Rachel's body. And she told them she caught Weeks calling Rachel on the phone. And of course, she asked him about that. And he said he was doing it as a favor for Gabriel because she wouldn't talk to Gabriel. 
And now the police are sure it was John Weeks who was Rachel's mystery date the night she was last seen. And guess what? He's also missing. Apparently, he went missing in early June as well. And we wonder why ladies don't want to go on dates with men these days. <laughs> well, hopefully they don't go on you, with someone we who might have calls them on the phone. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, I could say that too. Like uh, this thing about uh, uh, online dating, which that was probably the equivalent. <laughs> um, That's exactly. This yeah. is pre-online dating. It's yeah. exactly right. This yeah. is the equivalent to it, right? Uh, you call up, talk to somebody, give them all this impression, and then show up as somebody totally different. I mean, she literally might have been one of the first "quote quote" catfish stories that you hear yeah, about. Ex- yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I would yep. how I would describe that. Well, also remember Wayne Davis. He was with uh, Rachel and Gabriel and the other um, and Gabriel's nephew the night of the party. He was on the witness list for testifying in Gabriel's rape hearing, which was on June fifth again, and he never showed for Gabriel's hearing either. How convenient was that? But apparently, Davis was scheduled to appear for his own court hearing going back a few months in February because he himself had been charged with uh, driving under the influence separately, separate incident. And a few days before his own hearing, he had arranged for his friend named Darlene Lazo to give him a ride to court. And he told her that he expected to serve a 90-day sentence. He didn't seem to be too concerned about it. In fact, he wanted to go buy a puzzle and something else to keep himself occupied in jail. So on the morning of Davis's hearing, his friend Lazo went to his house to pick him up, but he wasn't there. He didn't answer the door. He tried to reach him on the phone. No one responded. She goes back to his house several times that day, but he couldn't be found. And when she returned to his house two days later, she discovered a note on his door, apparently signed by Davis. And the note stated that Davis left for California because he was scared that he would be sent to jail and she was not buying that story. She went inside his house and saw his jacket that he always wears just hanging on the back of a chair. She thought that was suspicious. And he was never seen alive again. And he also left a lot of money in his savings account. It just had been untouched. Nobody had, he had obviously and Cal- didn't go to California spending his money. So another witness to Gabriel's rape trial who has disappeared. He has a working MO, it sounds like. Yeah, he apparently he does. And so this may be still kind of confusing, but so I'm going to recap here on the witness mm-hmm. list okay. <laughs> to the rape of to the rape trial of Marvin Gabriel. Rachel, the victim, has been found murdered on July 5th of 1997. Wayne Davis went missing earlier in the year and found dead in a lake, similar to Rachel. John Weeks, who was the mystery date, is missing. And, of course, baby Shannon is nowhere to be found. So, we've got quite the body count already. And, basically, Marvin Gabriel is the only suspect. And if we look at the evidence, too, which is something we're going to talk about when it comes to competency and him understanding the trial process... We have a ton of physical evidence there too, right? Oh, yeah. There's a ton uh, of evidence. The, the bolt cutters, the chains. Yep. You know, we have other eyewitnesses at his campsite where he walked over and tried to yep. you know, pawn some things off for yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, we haven't even talked about what his neighbor, I believe, heard one night. Um, 
after all that. So yeah, like this is like it's compiling and you can hear yeah. it as we talk about it. It's a lot. It's significant amount of evidence. O- overwhelming. And so I'll just kind of uh, go over that what you were just referring to. During the investigation, the police did find those witnesses uh, at the campground who were camping near Gabriel. And and he asked them if he could store his motorcycle at their campsite, and he claimed he was camping at another campground that charged money. But uh, several witnesses claimed to have seen him with a woman matching the description of Rachel and another man who was believed to be John Weeks. He matched, he matched that description as well. And they were near Oxford Lake at the time of Rachel's vanishing. And then the next day, Gabriel comes back to their campsite, but by himself, and asked if he could store his boat at their site. He had a bruise under one eye, scratches on his face, and patches of hair missing, and he claimed he'd gotten into a fight with a friend. And so now the search is still on for Gabriel, and it goes on for several months. And it turns out he had been using the identity for a while, even a couple years prior, um, using the identity and social security number of a man named Robert Allen, who was a mentally disabled man, and in order to obtain Allen's social security benefits. Gabriel had obtained an Indiana driver's license in Allen's name in July of 1995. And in 96, he used that license to open up a bank account in New York where Allen's benefits could be deposited, his social security checks. And Gabriel also used Allen's identity to open two post office boxes to rent an apartment in Michigan, to rent a hotel room in Indiana, and to sell a parcel of land on a land contract, which turned out to be some whole crazy fraudulent scheme that we're not going to bring up because it was long and convoluted. So in, in October 1997, the FBI arrested Gabriel for social security fraud and federal agents after staking out a post office in New York where he regularly collected mail from a post office box. An FBI SWAT team surrounded him and arrested him without incident. And by the way, Robert Allen was never found either. And he's presumed dead. And, you know, that's, it reminds me of, um, I mean, he was definitely their main suspect in the homicide of Rachel, but they were able to get him on social security fraud, at least get him off the streets, which is like, what's his name? What's the, what's the mafia guy's name? Al Capone? Was it Al Capone? Mm-hmm. That they, they, they arrested him for uh, racketeering and tax evasion. That's, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. <laughs> anyway, that's what that reminded me of a little bit. And how far is the drive from Michigan to New York? Yeah, see, that's what I think, too. These people are all over the place. And how's he getting back and forth? And I, I mean, I'm going to guess it's uh, 12 to 16 well hours. well planned out is what I would think. Yeah, right? yeah. exactly. It's, yeah, it's definitely a trip. I wouldn't think that's a short little flight. Um, it didn't talk about him picking up airline tickets or anything like that no, either. No, um, But even still, that's a lot of planning. That's a lot of pre-thought. That's quite a... Uh, more significant evidence there. Well, and it sounded like he regularly went to these post office boxes when the social security checks were due to be uh, put in the post office box, which is why they knew what to do. 1997, that's not a direct deposit going straight into your bank account. Exactly. Yeah, you got to go pick up that physical check from that place. Yep. Exactly. Well, so now he's in custody and serving 60 months for fraud. Gabriel told several inmates there that he killed Rachel and Shannon. And he told a man named Nathan Brewster while in jail that he killed Rachel because, quote, she screamed rape and he had to take care of his business, end quote. And he also told Brewster that there was another body in Oxford Lake. 
he told a fellow inmate named Martin Love that he, quote, killed the baby because there was nowhere else to put it, end quote. So, finally, uh, at some point here, he's charged and tried for Rachel's murder in 2002. And as you said before, the evidence was overwhelming. And then the evidence showed that she was drowned on federal land. So he was charged in federal court instead of being charged by the state. And in the federal jurisdiction, that allowed the prosecutors to seek the death penalty in the case because Michigan no longer had the death penalty. Okay, so now that Mr. Gabrion is going to be charged in federal court, um, we need to talk about some legal precedents that have been set in the federal courts over the years so that we kind of understand where we're going with this conversation. Um, The main case we need to talk about is Dusky. That is D-U-S-K-Y versus the United States. Hmm. This is uh, really the first competency case on federal, uh, on a federal level that, you know, basically created my job. Okay. Awesome. Um, and when we're talking, yeah, which is fantastic. Right? So uh, <laughs> this, this, uh, this case start, uh, came up in 1960. Wow. So we're about, you know, 30, 40 years ahead of time before Gabrielle gets there. Yeah. Um, and in this case, uh, it's similar. There's um, Gabrielle really didn't have kidnapping, but obviously he took somebody against their will. Um, so we have some kidnapping in this Dusky case. Uh, also, a, a young female who was sexually assaulted. All these different type of you know, horrible crime details. But um, basically, gets brought up onto the federal cases. And going through the process, uh, the question of competency was raised. So what competency is? is a defendant's ability to understand the legal system, um, also to have like a ability to have a factual knowledge and understanding, a rational understanding of the proceedings mm-hmm. against them is the first prong that's established. The second prong that we look at legally here is how well a defendant can work with their attorneys. Okay, so that's kind of like right. working at relationships, understanding different uh, that... If I speak to my attorney, that secret is kept. It's not public knowledge. Whereas if they speak to somebody like me, that's going to be public knowledge, those type of things. Right. Um, so they can use that for their benefits. So that's the two prongs that we're really looking at there that Dusky establishes back in 1960. Um, so as a forensic psychologist, those are the most two important things. And it's important to start here that, again, it's a federal case with Dusky. So this competency... These prongs have been pretty much adopted by any state in the country. So, I, which means I could go work and do the same type of evaluations across the country. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what happened with Dusky was um, basically in the long run, they said that it's fundamentally unfair to try someone for an offense unless that person is able to understand the pending charges and is able to participate in the development or presentation of a defense. Um, it's not enough for the district court to find that the defendant is oriented to time, place, and has some recollection of the events in question, right? So we're talking about like cognitive abilities, right. the ability to recall details. So you can't just say, oh, I can't remember, and then therefore you're incompetent. Okay, right. so that's not enough. That's what okay. that's saying there. Um, goes on to kind of talk about the test must be whether the defendant has sufficient present ability to consult with his lawyer with a reasonable degree of rational understanding and whether he has a rational as well as a factual understanding of the proceedings against him. Okay. So if we're looking at two prongs, we're kind of looking at one, the factual idea, right? Right. Um, And that is simple stuff. What were you charged with? Are you charged with felonies? 
Is he charged with a misdemeanor? What's the difference between a felony and a misdemeanor? Right. Uh, who's the defendant? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what does a prosecuting attorney do? Um, also understanding like the adversarial nature of a courtroom. Uh, there's somebody here that's going to want to put me away or get a guilty conviction. Uh, there's somebody here that's on my side. And there's a third party, the judge, who's going to remain unbiased, right? And try to present things fairly for everybody. Um, so that's all the factual stuff, right? So it kind of, when we're looking at competency um, and we are, that's the first thing, right? Can this person understand? Can they have a factual idea of what's going on? And then we get into more of the relationship stuff, which is in how well you work with the attorney, which is a more difficult thing to discuss and to kind of evaluate. Yeah. So those are the two prongs of competence. Right. And, and with Gabrielle's case here, uh, I believe, well, let's kind of back up. Uh, competency can be raised at any point in a legal proceeding. Okay. So that can be brought up by anybody. It can be brought up by the defense attorney. It can be brought up by the prosecuting attorney. It can be brought up by the judge. Um, and that can be at any time. So that could be pretrial hearings. That could be sentencing hearings. That could also be post-conviction hearings. Um, so it's like somebody's on probation, right. let's say, um, they can have an attorney. And so that person's already been convicted. They can have an attorney actually appeal that conviction and say, oh, they weren't competent at the time of that conviction. Therefore, we need to go back and do this again. So were, were they, were his attorneys raising this competency issue or what, was he having to go through any kind of testing or whatever leading up to his trial? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if we're let's let's just kind of start with Gabrielle's personality, okay? Um, <laughs> he's a, he's he's what I would call a difficult defendant to work with. You um, think he uh, at, <laughs> just a little bit, right? <laughs> um, he, he at one point, uh, even during one of the sentencing hearings, I believe, or during a witness testimony, actually reached over and punched his attorney in court. <laughs> so like he had he has this history of not working well with people right I obviously would, yeah. he's being accused of sexual assaults he's uh he doesn't care about other people's no. rights he probably doesn't look at people much like human beings more as animals and objects and so one of the psychologists brought up that he believed or i think it, i don't remember if it was he or she or the doctor but uh, that gabrielle had antisocial personality mm-hmm. characteristics mm-hmm. or an antisocial personality yeah. disorder yeah so when we're looking at that that uh again when we say antisocial, that does not mean that you don't want to speak or you don't want to be sociable with people. Yeah. We're looking at antisocial as um, anti other people's rights and society's rules don't apply to me. Well, like, yes. Those type of things. That's more of the idea here. So a lot of these characteristics are established at a young age and a personality. Some of them are probably genetically linked. So his mom and dad or somebody in his family might have had some of this aspect to them. But, you know, he starts off at a young, I think there's, they talk about some animal abuse with him. Mm. Obviously he has, he has, so that's the type of things we're looking at. He has difficulty in school. This person uh, typically would get into fights with peers. Um, They might even be neglect. They might be rejected by peers, which is a really negative thing for kids. Um, This person uh, probably damaged property. Um, This person probably picks up an arrest record as a juvenile. Uh, they might have been truant from school. They probably got suspended or expelled. And while those characteristics can be like mood disorders and different things as a child, um, the interesting diagnosis aspect for antisocial is that these characteristics are established as a child, 
Well, we do not give that diagnosis until somebody's above the age of 18. So you have to be an adult. So you can't just chalk this up bad behavior to puberty. Right. Um, You have to kind of rule out all those ideas, right? So, but you have to have that established pattern of these bad behaviors as a kid. And then it really leads into what you do as an adult as well. Um, So this, you know, I think he has burglary charges previously wasn't that something that we brought up with him Mm -hmm. um so again he doesn't care for the rights of others right i bought this this is mine he doesn't care he takes it physical assaults on other people uh you know there's a lot in his case of threatening um you know i'm gonna hurt you those type of things to get his way Uh, Obviously, he's tried to manipulate people to get things where he's asked his buddy to call Rachel or to call Rachel over and over and over again. Right. So he's manipulating other people's to get a gain. So he's definitely got antisocial characteristics there. Now, here's the tricky part with that. Even though you have those characteristics, that does not mean that you cannot work with your attorney well. Okay, so just because you have these type of things at some point, he's still making a decision. Um, and that's really the main point that keeps coming up with him is that he makes a decision to act this way right? Um, for a secondary gain, whether it be to manipulate, right? So he manipulated his buddy to call Rachel and therefore uh, his secondary gain was so that he would be alone with Rachel so he could, again, uh, you know, assault her or kill her in the long run and, uh, you know, take her off the witness list. So that's his secondary gain. So, um, yeah. Well, back to that, since you mentioned that, taking her mm-hmm. off the witness list, taking all those folks off the witness list by, uh, mm-hmm. they all went missing and some were found dead. But that seemed to be, uh, and I think I was reading this somewhere, like, I don't know how you would diagnose this or what you would say about this um, mentally, but that seemed to be the way he solved his problems was if something was getting in his way or something preventing him from, if he was going to be going to jail, he just would eliminate what he perceived as a problem completely. Yeah. Very antisocial, right? I guess that's, it's so I'm learning that that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Society's in my way. Something is stopping me here. I don't care that this is a bad act. I mean, we're not discussing the fact that he knows the difference or he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. Okay. We, we are assuming in a, He's made enough decisions and actions to we we know that now. He understands this is bad, this is good. And because he's antisocial, that doesn't apply to him. Okay. He doesn't care about that. He's gonna press he's gonna go past that to make sure he gets what he needs. So leading up to his trial, was he ever deemed incompetent to stay in trial? Or did that all go So yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Your great question. Uh, I actually, the very beginning of his trial, he attempts to um, represent himself. Everybody has the right to do that, okay? But it takes an evaluation. The court's not just going to let you get up there, right? And you, you want you don't have a license, right? You haven't passed the bar. You don't understand all the ins and outs of the legal process. Um, and so, when that occurs, yes, typically competency is brought up right away. Because that makes no sense why, unless you're, I mean, I don't know, some genius, you know, like we see on TV <laughs> and it kind of gets upplayed yeah. in TV, right? Right. Oh, he can represent himself, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But no, not in cases like this. He doesn't know the ins and outs and how to submit evidence. He doesn't know how to put in injunction. You know, like there's right. so many things. that, yeah. And so that, because he wants to represent himself and not understand the benefit of working with an attorney, 
you're incompetent at that point. Ah, okay. Uh, and so mm-hmm. then, then do they have to provide some type of treatment? So then they can deem him competent or is it just yes. a matter of him changing his mind? On- so, yeah, you can't, they don't just slap you with that and say, okay, we're going to keep you here for a bit. Um, that's when I would step in um, and we would come in and do our proper evaluations with them. In different states, the evaluations are different. Um, when it comes to the time frame um, that you complete them in, where the person might be located is another issue. Um, sometimes people are on bond, sometimes they're incarcerated, sometimes they're at mental health hospitals. Um, so that can change as well. But the actual evaluation of competency, it's, it's, competency itself is pretty standard across state lines. Mm-hmm. Um, it includes a, a clinical interview, right? So I'm going to sit down with the person. Well, first off, we, whenever we sit down, this is a legal matter. So we have to explain legal situation to them, right? Um, we sit down and, you know, I'm going to discuss details of their case. Um, I'm not looking for testimony at that point. That's one of the main things I really stress to the defendants I evaluate. And even if they do admit guilt or provide evidence towards that to me, I'm, I, it's a standard practice by us forensic psychologists not to include that information mm-hmm. and to word it to where that is not present in our reports. Wow. Right. Because right. we're just a, we're a servant of the court. We're unbiased. Um, we're a neutral party here. Um, you know, I'm not working for the defense attorney in that case. I'm not working for the prosecuting attorney. Now, if I'm called to come in and testify, will I likely be on one side of the other? Yes, typically. Um, that's just the way court works, but yeah, so that's the one thing that we really stress to them. Uh, the other aspect, you know, is to usually when you meet with a doctor like me, uh, things are kept between you and the doctor as secrets because that's your patient, right? That doesn't happen in, in these legal cases, right? This, I mean, we looked up Gabion's case and we got 120 pages right. of all his documentation, right? And that was just on the internet right, right there. Yeah. Um, so these people need to understand those things. Um, so we have to explain that to them. Um, you have to make sure that they understand that aspect before you can really even move forward with the competency evaluation. Right. Right. Another, uh, one thing that we kind of run into is, and Gabby on, he did this too. Um, he just made decisions not to participate in the evaluation. Right. Huh. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to talk to that doctor today. I'm in jail. I don't, I'm not leaving my cell. Um, hmm. that can happen. Um, it happens quite often, uh, yeah. you know, and then as a, a as an employee or a, a person of the court, then I have to write like a letter to the judge and ask the judge, hey, what are we supposed to do next? And the judge really gets to make the decision on, okay, we need to evaluate him again. This person needs to be moved or whatever, you know, um, if they're on bond or on summons, as they say, um, and they're not participating in the evaluation, the judge can or, uh, order a warrant for their arrest. Um, and the next time they get picked up, they can be thrown back in jail again. Hmm. Well, it sounds like his defense was all over the place from what I remember. Uh, It sounded like he was trying to blame, you know, it could have been this person or that person, like, you know, some other dude did it defense, blaming multiple Mm -hmm. people for murders. And he also did this threatening letter writing campaign to witnesses, including Rachel's family. So I think he, he he believed maybe that that's worked for him in the past, but now he's in jail and all he can do is send threatening letters. But that's pretty scary because what if he were to get out? Uh, and I can see that that type of intimidation 
might work. Although in theory, that's supposed to be illegal, and you should serve a lot more time for that yeah. as well. This is the judge's. This is the judge's right. decision whether or not yeah. to put this person on bond. Right. Um, you know whether or not to put this person on court-ordered medications. Right. Those type of things too. Right. These are decisions that judges make, and that's yeah. definitely important for your right. judges. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and also, but you mentioned some of his antics where he attacked his lawyer, but there were a lot of antics, I think, in court. And I think one of them was um, mm-hmm. shouting out obscenities and crazy things. He, I also read that he strangled or attempted to strangle his attorney. I don't know if that was two different uh, incidents or not. Part of competency is your ability to act well in court and to understand that your actions in court can cause you to get new charges. Um, and some of the times Gabrion was, uh, I think he was either yelling out at one point he accused the judge of passing cocaine on to one of the attorneys. Uh, he also said the judge was a child molester at one point. So he's saying all these things. And I, I think the judge kind of looked through it a little bit. Um, and with the judge's authority in the courtroom being the, the, the end all be all, as we say, um, I think he re- the judge realized this is all kind of fake and he's doing this trying to pull something off and it's not going to benefit him um, to try to represent himself because he doesn't know how to act in court. Yeah, so throughout the trial, um, and I might have said this wrong before, but there were three competency evaluations that were performed. Every one of them said that he was malingering his symptoms or exaggerating or his symptoms were inconsistent, so he was faking. Um, and, but then... Throughout the case, uh, the, throughout throughout the trial, he was evaluated by nine total psychologists. But so, out of the nine that interviewed him, eight of them said he was faking, um, and one of them, uh, who was hired by the defense, uh, who did not interview Gabrion, only reviewed records and talked to his family members and kind of did the social history um, aspect to it. He's the only one, only psychologist that said, "Oh, there is actually mental health issues here." Yeah. Well, another woman, Gabriel had actually held and pointed a rifle on her and her two-year-old child. And interestingly, evidence implicating Gabriel in the disappearances of Alan, remember that's the guy whose identity he stole and was missing, and then the other men who were also missing, well, that evidence was admitted in this trial. And I think the defense tried to present also the padlocks that, oh, well, these padlocks the locks, the keys to the padlocks, you know, there's only so many keys in a, and you could find any key that would have opened those padlocks. And then um, they tried to say, hey, these letters were written in Rachel's handwriting. He couldn't have done that because this is her handwriting, in which it, in fact it mm-hmm. was. And what we said earlier about the fact that it was Rachel's handwriting, there was a theory that that law enforcement had that believed that he had Rachel bring her baby and used her baby threats to her child to force her to write these letters in advance of before her murder. And so it does make sense that she did write them, but under duress. Yes. But I mean, think about all the antisocial characteristics we have here with this individual, right? Right. Um, Yeah. He's using babies to get, things done now like this is this is very this is extreme stuff uh i have not faced i've never seen a defendant go that far with the with the antisocial characteristics to get these things done so he's he's definitely a case yeah one thing that was brought up in the trial was the fact that the judge denied the defendant's right 
to fire his counsel and defend himself. Like before you talked about defending, we talked about him, his own defense and, and the competency part of that, but just how I didn't, I guess I didn't realize, or maybe it wasn't emphasized that the judge actually wouldn't let him defend himself. Part of competency is your ability to act well in court and to understand that your actions in court can cause you to get new charges. Um, And some of the times Gabrion was, uh, I think he was either yelling out at one point he accused the judge of passing cocaine on to one of the attorneys. Uh, He also said the judge was a child molester at one point. So he's saying all these things. And I, I think the judge kind of looked through it a little bit. Um, and with the judge's authority in the courtroom being the, the, the end all be all, as we say, um, I think he re- the judge realized this is all kind of fake and he's doing this, trying to pull something off and it's not going to benefit him, um, to try to represent himself because he doesn't know how to act in court. Um, so yeah, so I think the judge made the right decision in that. Yeah. Agreed. You know, when you're talking about like the brain injuries and everything, yeah. I didn't, I was going back through the case record here. Um, I guess while he was at one of the federal hospitals, like the mental health hospitals, they ordered a CT scan on him. Oh, And on the way to the CT scan, the uh, doctor found him to actually have tin foil in his hair. Oh. So he, he was trying to mess up the CT results. Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So during the murder trial, the prosecution had found multiple witnesses to testify who described Gabriel's propensity for violence, including other physical assaults and sexual assaults. And in at least two occasions, Gabriel set people's houses on fire following altercations with him. And Wayne Davis, the friend who invited Rachel the night she was raped and who disappeared in February 1997 before his DUI court date, and who was also supposed to testify in the rape trial against Gabriel. Well, not long after Gabriel's murder trial for killing Rachel began, his body was found by canoeists in Twinwood Lake, another lake not far from where Rachel's body was found in Manistee National Forest, with the same type of chains and cinder blocks as what was used with Rachel. Gabriel is a prime suspect in Davis's homicide as well as the other disappearances. But for some reason, he was never charged for any of those disappearances or Davis's homicide, at least not that I could find any information on. So in the trial of the United States versus Marvin Gabriel, he was convicted and sentenced to death. He also, of course, he did some crazy stuff in jail, like making weapons, different various forms of weapons and and. uh is it, what do you call them? Shanks? Shanks? Yeah. What do you call them? <laughs> oh, yeah. You call them shanks. Yeah. Shanks, yep, shanks, yep. shanks. exactly yeah. what they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. they can be made out of anything. Anything. Seen some really int- chicken bones. Oh, anything. Yeah. Toothbrush. I had bones. one. Uh, we had a we had an individual in California that actually uh, came in with like dreadlocked hair, uh-huh. and she ended up making shanks out of her hair. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that would cut you. Oh yeah! Wow, mm-hmm. yeah, That's impressive. And she and yeah, we we found it in one of hers. So like, it was always on her when she walked around. And then later on, there was others found in her cell as well, um, so that she could like hide it. It was yeah. yeah. Well, you know, he carved a gun out of soap and painted it black. 
and he started fires in his cell somehow. He threatened to cut himself and then throw blood on the deputies. And here's one thing that I think, Matt, I don't know if you want to um, address this, but this maniacal, I don't know if that's the right word, but the h- horrific trauma this would have inflicted on Rachel's family. But he st- actually somehow from jail started a nonprofit called No More Missing Children. And he claimed he started this so that he can help find uh, baby Shannon. And I don't know if you saw that, but what what I does did, that I say? Did not. That's <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, uh, but think about the trauma. I mean, the, the fact that he actually had access to be able to do that yeah. kind of surprised right. me. Um, yeah. Well, there's a lot. But of you action. know, that's 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 what his attorneys are asking for. I mean, if he's got a an attorney that's really working for him, his attorney is going to press these issues and make sure that he has access to things that he says he needs. So in the trial of the United States versus Marvin Gabrion, he was convicted and sentenced to death. And in 2011, Gabrion appealed both the conviction and the sentence. And the defense maintained that jurors should have been told that had Gabrion been tried in state court, he would not have faced the death penalty. Gabrion was entitled to argue to the jury during the penalty phase of his trial that they should consider any, quote, residual doubt end quote, that he killed Timmerman inside the National Forest. So the defense wanted them to have a little bit of concern, and a little bit of doubt that instead of the National Forest half of the lake, that she could have been killed and left in the private property part of Oxford Lake. But the conviction was upheld. However, the sentence was actually overturned. So why the death penalty was reversed, right? Like something about his childhood and the trauma he had and multiple head injuries and things like that. That's right. That's right. Because they were trying to say that he had a personality change from a traumatic brain injury um, on his, because he was in a motor vehicle accident, right? Decisions along the way. And I I think the the doctor, the psychologist that interviewed him for that third competency evaluation, looking at that traumatic brain injury, basically pointed out to the fact that competency when we talk in court is a snapshot, right? Um, I'm not able, I'm not predicting future competency. I'm not predicting past competency. I'm only able to say at that moment that I evaluated him or her, that person was incompetent or competent at that time. Right. Okay. So if that person goes back to jail, they change medications, they become suicidal, they stop eating, whatever happens, that's why competency can be raised again. Right. There. Right. Um, and that's why he, I think that's why he got evaluated eight different times. Yeah. Okay. Because it's such a fluid yeah. thing and he would do something so drastic the next time. I mean, one time he was talking about, he was working for the CIA and kind of, we're talking like delusional disorders right. now. Yeah. So he was kind of feigning, feigning schizophrenia, um, which is one of the, that's the main uh, or abnormal behaviors. Um, and so when we're looking at Gabrion here and the evidence against him, uh, he's planned out, he's brought other people into this scenario who he then later removes from his scenario so that he doesn't get, so he's not going to be found guilty. Um, he's gone out and purchased things. Uh, he's got bolt cutters, he's got keys, he's got locks. He's, you know, there's a step-by-step process here for him, um, when it comes to this crime and that right there really shows that he's not schizophrenic. Yeah. The appeals were like, they're decent appeals. Like they have some, some merit to them, something you can kind of back it up with, but 
in the long run, it basically came down to like, yeah, that's not going to work is what the judge said. Yeah. So, right. So in 2013, the sentence appeal was overturned and the death penalty was reinstated and Gabriel sat on death row at the United States Penitentiary in Terre Haute. But currently he's held at the United States Medical Center for the Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. Okay. So he might actually have a little bit of decompensation going on there. Right? Mm-hmm. It sounds so like he's been moved center. off of the general. Yeah. He's off the general population unit basically. And they've moved him to a medical unit, which could mean mental health issues as well. So do they ever put anybody to death on death row who has declined mentally and they're no longer able to understand what's happening? Uh, they, they, if their attorney doesn't appeal that or bring that up in the, the hearings, they could. But uh, no, if if that person's decompensating to where they're not understanding why they're being put to death, then yes, that could be raised um, and that could delay the whole process. And then they, you know, a judge could make a decision, okay, if they're not, well, so if, somebody, if that happened and that decompensation was expected to not change or right. that person was going to stay at that baseline for a while then we would kind of, an evaluator would say that person is uh, non-restorable is the term we use here in Colorado. Um, It's different terminology in different states. Basically, it means that over the next two years or so, or the quote, quote, foreseeable future, however well, however the courts want to define that term, um, that that person with treatment will not get to competency again. Interesting. Well, I I tried to find some information about the victim impacts in this case, but the number of victims he just created in his wake was really overwhelming. And we didn't even talk about the terror and the other rape uh, cases and assaults that he committed just, just in his neighborhood and people that just happened to get in his his, Even with his wife too, I believe, right? Yeah. Yes. And since, since he was charged federally for Rachel's murder, um, there likely might've been some, assistance from maybe the FBI Victim Services Division, division, but their creation was only in 2001. So they didn't even have victim specialists until 2001. And also the U.S. Attorney's Office, who would have been prosecuting, should have had a victim specialist assigned to help them, the victims, meaning like Rachel's family and the other family members uh, for the murdered victims, but help them navigate the criminal justice system, which this would have been exhausting and difficult for any legal victim now, like their families who are still alive, those are considered the legal victims, but helping them navigate the criminal justice system would have been incredibly daunting. Again, I'm not sure in 2002 that there were any mechanisms in place to make sure their rights were afforded. Not to mention there were so many victims he created and some of them would have fallen under state law in various states as well from his many, many, many years of crime spree. Well, that's all we have for this case today. And Dr. Wright, I can't thank you enough for coming on and helping navigate some of this stuff through this case. And um, there was a lot to it. And it was very confusing. And I really, really appreciate your time coming on here. Well, I thank you for having me. Um, I think it's important for the, you know, the listeners here to kind of understand these aspects of cases. Um, not that I would ever want anybody to get caught up in this, but it's important to know your rights. Um, so I think this is a good talk that we had. So I appreciate you having me. Yeah. I really appreciate I really enjoyed this. this was <laughs> me too. We'll have to do it again. And so, hey, everybody, be safe in wild places and watch out for the company you keep. <laughs>